Hello and welcome to April's episode of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. This month's topic is women in medicine, and I must say I'm really excited to dive into the topics we have lined up for you today. Joining us this month, we have Dr. Amanda De Silva, another one of our ED registrars, who will be presenting an article examining the ongoing discrepancies that exist between genders with regards to myocardial infarction and PCI. We have Dr. Jessica Stabler, a neurology AT here at Westmead, who will be presenting a paper looking at motherhood in medicine. And we have Dr. Izzy Rashid, one of our ED registrars as well, who will be presenting a paper looking at the effects of professional background and gender on the perception of leadership skills. We are also lucky enough to be joined this week by ED staff specialist, Dr. Danielle Unwin, who will be presenting the interlude section this month and who will be sharing her insights and experiences as we go. So before we take it away, let's go around the table quickly so you know who is with us today. Hi guys, it's Simone. It's so nice to have you listen to us. Hi guys, this is Shreyas and I'm very excited to be here today. Hi, it's Danielle and I'm really chuffed to be invited to be part of this today. Hi, it's Jess, um, and I'm likewise very excited to be here. Hi, it's Harry. I'm here to represent all the women in medicine. <laughs> Following that, this is Amanda. I'm also really excited to be here today. Hi, this is Izzy. Thank you so much for asking me to be part of this today. And I'm Caroline, and I'll be your host for today. So, to get things started, we have Dr. Amanda De Silva, who is going to take us through a paper by Julia Stelly, as well as one of our cardiology consultants, Dr. Sarah Zaman. It's titled, Sex Differences Persist in Time to Presentation, Revascularization and Mortality in Myocardial Infarction Treated with Percutaneous Coronary Intervention. So, Amanda, I'll pass it over to you. Thank you, Caroline. So, as it was introduced, essentially the paper that I've looked at is um, a paper that was done based on Australian data, published back in 2019 in the Journal of the American Heart Association and was actually contributed to by one of our Westmead cardiologists, Dr. Sarah Zaman. Essentially looked at differences between male and female presentations of both STEMIs and non-STEMIs and differences in the time to treatment, time to revascularization and differences in outcomes that both male and female patients received. So I guess a bit of background first of all, we all know that coronary artery disease is one of the leading causes of death worldwide in both male and female patients and we know that time is myocardium so time to effective PCI or revascularization is key to improving these patients' outcomes. The study that I've looked at aimed to identify if there's a difference between a few different things, so symptom to door outcomes, door to balloon time and door to PCI time between the two genders. It's a topic that has been researched quite extensively, but there's not a lot of deep insight into why these differences occur in the ED. And, and there's not a lot of research into what we can do to improve these outcomes for both men and women, but women in particular. And I think that this study has really tried to identify the root causes 
of the disparities between the two genders. So a bit about the study itself, they looked at some data that was taken from the Victorian Cardiac Outcomes Registry, which is a database based out of Victoria in Australia, um, which is linked to all the hospitals that are engaged in PCI treatment for patients. So they recruited 13 and a half thousand patients of which about a quarter of them were women from 30 centers around Victoria who had both STEMIs and NSTEMIs that required the intervention or the PCI. They defined STEMI as having elevated biomarkers with new or presumed new ST segment elevation. NSTEMI was defined as the presence of elevated biomarkers with at least one ECG change of either ST segment depression or T wave abnormalities or having ischemic symptoms with presentation. They didn't include patients who had an inpatient MI, so they've only looked at patients who presented directly to the ED and were admitted based on that presentation. So just a few definitions to go through. The times that they looked at specifically were symptom to door, which was the time of the symptom onset and the arrival of the patient to the centre itself. Door to balloon time, which was the time of arrival at the PCI centre to time of establishing flow in the culprit vessel. And then there was door to PCI time, which was the time of first hospital arrival to the start of the actual PCI procedure. They used the door to balloon time for STEMIs and the door to PCI time for NSTEMI patients. They also looked at a few sort of secondary outcomes as well as what they were looking at with the revascularization. So they looked at in-hospital and 30-day mortality on sort of major adverse events. So looked at death, new or recurrent MI, stent thrombosis, target vessel revascularization, as well as strokes and bleeding sort of complications. Interestingly, they found throughout the board that for all three of those specific times, in STEMI patients, women had a longer time, so delay to treatment effectively, and had higher mortality outcomes and higher negative outcomes compared to the male population that they were compared to. The symptom to door time difference actually was about 30 minutes, which is really interesting if you think about the fact that women then in sort of implied that they present later to the ED with their symptoms for whatever reason than men do. And they also had a significantly lower proportion of patients, or a significantly longer ischemic time, I guess, is the way to put it, between male and female patients. So women tended to have at least 30 minutes more ischemic time than men before they actually got their revascularization. Like I said, it's stuff that's been researched before, and it's been sort of broached in another paper that I've also looked through, which is called Sex Disparities in the Assessment and Outcomes of Chest Pain Presentations in Emergency Departments, which was published in 2019 in the BMJ, which sort of tried to look at the reasons why women tended to have poorer outcomes with these particular presentations. And they found that overall, in each sort of stage of their presentation to the ED, so getting to the ED, being triaged in ED, being seen in ED, and then being diagnosed, in all of those areas, women tended to have longer timeframes, worse outcomes. I think it's just really interesting because um, it's something that's been acknowledged previously, but like I said, hasn't actually had anything done about it because there's not enough research as to why these things occur. So that, I think this is what this paper was trying to sort of highlight. Second paper, which was that one that looked specifically at what ED management flaws exist, found that about 20% of women were less likely to be allocated an urgency of immediate review, so a category one triage, or within 10 minutes, so a category two triage. So that's 20% less likely to be given a cat two chest pain, which I guess for Westmead ED specifically is quite a typical triage. You know, everyone comes in with chest pain, they get an automatic cat two. So it's interesting to find that in maybe a slightly different population, these people aren't even getting that urgent escalation of treatment. 
They also found that women were 15% less likely to be examined within the first hour of arrival to ED. They were 20% less likely to have a troponin done, 35% less likely to be admitted to a high intensity care unit, so CCU or ICU, and they were 35% more likely to die in the ED. So quite significant disparity in the treatment outcomes for these patients. So it kind of looked at stuff as well, as I said, breaking it down into the stages of these patients presenting. So being the, the first thing being, why do women present later to the ED? And I think one of the main things that people have postulated being the reason for that is that women tend to have more atypical presentations of what ends up to be in cardiac chest pain. So they present with GI or musculoskeletal type symptoms, which then end up kind of getting dismissed by medical professionals, so both nursing and medical staff. It's also interesting because they identify that 90% of triage nurses in the ED in Australia are actually women. So it's not like there's an unconscious gender bias in triaging these people. It's women triaging women and not triaging them appropriately, apparently. Um, so it's not a discordance between the sex of the triage nurse and the patient that's contributing to it. So really interesting looking at these studies to try and figure out where the errors lie within our management and how we can sort of improve them. Thanks, Amanda. That's really, really interesting. I must say, when I read this paper, I actually had no idea that such a disparity existed. Um, and I know you've already touched on, I guess, some of the reasons that might be behind why women take longer to present and why maybe it takes longer for them to be triaged. I just thought maybe we'd open that up to the floor and find out if anyone else had any thoughts on why that might be the case. Danielle here. I had a rather cynical suggestion and I thought maybe we're women at home cooking some meals so their husband had some meals to eat while they're in hospital <laughs> and that's why they're delayed. <laughs> I, I won't lie, the thought did cross my mind when I was reading these articles. I wondered whether it was because women, again, subconsciously have other things that they feel or they, they need to prioritise to so their children, their families, their work life, whatever it may be. Another thing I was thinking was maybe it's because for the, I guess, for the public, the general sort of interpretation of a classic heart attack is that you have left-sided chest pain that goes to your neck and goes to your jaw and goes down your arm and it's like a, like a crushing, squeezing pain. And if women are presenting more atypically, then we're not highlighting this to the general public so they don't identify that this is actually a serious problem and then they prioritise it lower. Because I thought it was interesting to say there's been a campaign for you know to educate women about their atypical symptoms, but... I've not seen anything, I'm not sure if I'm in that older age group <laughs> quite yet, but I've not seen any campaign that I can recall saying actually your symptoms may be different and you should still regard them. And then I try to think about how many women have I seen who've presented classically like a man with an infarct who's sweaty and grey and ashen. I can't remember any female, off the top of my head, I can't remember anyone. So I just think we present very differently. And then I guess the question is, why do we present differently? Is it, is it related to hormones or something? Like, why don't we get the symptoms that men get when they're having an infarct? And we don't look, you know, we don't look mm. as sick or unwell. Yeah. Um, one of the papers, the second one that I mentioned, actually did sort of touch on a possible theory. They've said that in women, coronary artery disease tends to occur more as a result of spasm and dysfunction of the endothelium rather than like a physical blockage. So that could potentially lead to a difference in the experience of the pain and then that could then you know, be misinterpreted as a non-cardiac chest pain. But I do agree, I, I was thinking about this exactly as you said, Dr. Ronman, I can't think of an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that has gone to the cath lab with an occlusion that's been stented. 
I can't think of a female patient that I've seen. Not that I have the years of experience that you do, but they've all been men. And the people who look peri-arrest, you know, really grey and sick and unwell and short of breath and look like they're about to crash in front of you, they've all been older male patients. And yeah. that may translate to what happens at triage. Like, is there a gender bias of women treating women or is it the fact that the woman presents to triage and she doesn't look that sick? Mm. And then it's also about sick behaviours. I was thinking about how many women have I seen throw themselves on the floor and behave like that and how yeah. many men so maybe it's your behavior when you're unwell that affects yeah. how you're triaged and you know and treated as well absolutely on that note um I think this paper really raised for me the idea of sort of unconscious biases I'd love to see a study that looks at time to ECG as opposed to time to cath or time to PCI because I like I think that raises a, a big issue here you guys were mentioning sort of catastrophic uh, ACS in female patients, and I, I can only really remember one case who unfortunately passed away, and she presented in the very typical way. She had you know, horrific 10 out of 10 um, refractory chest pain. She was diaphoretic. She had a tombstone STEMI and then you know went to cath and unfortunately arrested en route and was not revivable. I think... That's probably not the patient that we're going to miss, or rather that's not the patient that we're going to miss once they've had their ECG at the very least. You know, particularly working overnight, we're all aware of these borderline cases where, um, you know, the patient comes in, you know, a lot of the time it's maybe there's one or two millimetres of ST elevation and then, you know, what you're getting asked over the phone is, oh, are they still in pain? Are they still uncomfortable? Are they still symptomatic? Are we going to do this now? Should we just do it in the morning? And I feel like that's probably where a lot of the sort of time discrepancies are getting missed because I think it was it was very interesting to see that in non-STEMI in the paper that you mentioned Amanda there was no difference and probably the the biggest difference between STEMI and non-STEMI for my perception is that STEMI is much more clinical non-STEMI has a hard biomarker you, you can't really argue when the troponin is 600 that you know the woman is being hysterical but you know, we, with STEMI, I think you, you have the, there's a degree of interpretation. You know, the, the person has presented with typical symptoms. You know, the ECG is following a, you know, a, a set number of patterns. But within that, uh, as we know, ECGs aren't perfect with sensitivity. And, um, you know, often there's a lot of borderline cases. And so I just wonder about, you know, both within patients themselves, how, how much they're internalizing their own perceptions of, of you know, what, what their symptoms should be. But then also, as you mentioned, oh, like I think that second study was very relevant to bring up the fact that, um, you know, at triage, they're not getting the category two. And then perhaps at when we assess them, where we're not recognizing that this is someone who should have a prompt ECG just to, just to make sure. And maybe that's where something that we could address in our, our practice when it comes to sort of improving the outcomes for these people. Um, I think the other thing to sort of think about is regards to your differentials for your ACS patients or your STEMI patients. I think women also have a lot more risk factors for that make it easy to go down different pathways for chest pain. So PE, particularly patients who are on hormone replacement therapy, they've had clots in the past, they're pregnant. These are all things that make it a lot easier to start going down a different pathway or sort of give you that implicit bias in your own head as a physician to go, actually, I want to make sure 100% or I feel like I personally am more likely to think about, well, could this be PE in a female patient versus a male one where the story sounds a lot more typically cardiac as we discussed in male patients, but a bit more atypical in females. I think in that situation where it sounds atypical, you start thinking about atypical differentials a lot sooner in females because you've got these alternate factors that can contribute to their likelihood of it being 
a different differential compared to the men where a lot of the time, like in the men, I'll definitely ask smoking and cardiac history in the family and hypertension a lot sooner than in the females where I'll get to that, but I'll often ask about immobilization, hormone replacement therapy, that kind of thing sooner, whereas those things are not really, like your peer risk factors, I feel like, are on a secondary list for the males compared to the females in personal experience. But obviously, you know, it's, as Shreyas was saying, it's time to ECG. And my experience in our department is time to ECG is fairly prompt. Like nearly everyone with a heart gets an ECG. <laughs> so I would find it hard. And, you know, I mean, you've got some you know, obvious changes usually for a STEMI ECG. So I would have thought the delay, there wouldn't be that delay here. That's my anecdotal feeling. I guess the concerning bit is for me that women just aren't presenting. Like the, the delay was not... A lot of it wasn't in the hospital, some of it was. A lot of it is outside the hospital. And so that's like, why don't we come? Like, that's the big question because you're saying it's a 30-minute ischemic time, but it was actually that most of that was actually because I haven't come to the ED. And I guess that's something to be looked at. And is that just non-recognition on women's behalf or is there something else at play that we're not aware of? I think a lot of it does come down to the um, the illness behaviours as well. And um, I feel like in part it is that mental load that we've that we've discussed there are multiple competing interests at um, at home which is not exclusive to women but there are some particular competing interests that do affect women to a greater degree than men but also I think that women are potentially more likely to try and explain away the the symptoms a little bit. Oh, it's probably nothing, and and kind of um, a little bit less wanting to draw attention to themselves, um, which is probably somewhat there. There are probably multiple kind of social cultural factors that um, that all roll into that. But isn't that in, in contradiction to because normally in primary prevention women are much better. We get. We get the pap smears and we get the mammograms and it's more the men that put their head in the sand and they don't get their prostate checked. That kind yeah. of is in contradiction to other parts of medicine when it comes to men and women. Yeah, yeah, the acute care maybe they're not so good at. Well, I guess that leads on to another question then. I don't know whether we'll have a final answer for it, but do you, what do you think we can do as doctors to maybe help kind of close that gap between the presentation times for men and women? Um, I think... It's what we've already touched on with Dr. Unwin saying that I think you just need to have more general knowledge of what to expect. I mean, like, you know, for head injuries, I give everyone a head injury fact sheet saying come back to ED if you have any of these symptoms and signs because that could mean that you've got a brain bleed. I don't think we necessarily do that as much with chest pain patients. I certainly don't. And I don't know if that's just bad practice or if that's just something that's not been taught to me to embed into my regular practice to highlight you're this particular group of patients. You're, you're a female, you might not actually have what is classed as a stereotypical chest pain or a heart attack type presentation. So if you have indigestion, if you have, even if you think it's just musculoskeletal chest pain, like come back and get yourself checked out to make sure that it's nothing worse. Just on that note, Amanda, in, in the sort of main paper that you presented, the chest pain, like they, they didn't mention in the discussion that 85% of cases of young females still do present with chest pain. So clearly um, there's still a chest pain component. That's why I'm kind of interested, as Jess, you were alluding to in, in this notion that people are kind of either explaining away their own symptoms or otherwise other people are explaining away the patient's symptoms, which are, I guess is something that we have a bit more control over. 
I agree, Daniel. I haven't seen any sort of public awareness campaign for uh, women with chest pain or like, you know, highlighting specifically to female patients that they should be coming to the hospital. I'll be interested in everyone's perspectives as to why you guys think that that might be the case where, you know, most people are still having the chest pain, but, you know, not recognising it enough to come. I guess the reassuring bit for me was that it was only 22% were women and we're older and they were all pluses for me. I thought. <laughs> and the other thing I took out of it is that Victoria is a very organised state when it comes to, you know, research and, you know, the institutes gathering information, except for when it comes to public health pandemics. They're not so good at that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you mean, I think a, a public awareness campaign would be good you know they have them for the stroke about fast and presenting early as well and I just think maybe you know GPs or you know on TV or media or social media there needs to be something about that you know if you're an older woman with or without risk factors you know don't dismiss symptoms it could be an infarct and maybe that the time in which you take to get to hospital really can change your outcome because I think that's something that maybe in broader public is not well-known. We all know to get to hospital quickly for stroke symptoms, but perhaps if you've had chest pain before, maybe some unstable angina or stable angina that's gone away, you know, you were okay last time, I can wait a bit longer before I come in the second time. So that might be where our perspective needs to change a bit. And then also, I think possibly um, recognition, uh, just a quick anecdote. I think about a year ago, I had a resident present to me a case of a woman who'd come in with what sounded to me as reasonably typical chest pain, although it was presented as atypical chest pain, who had felt a little bit presyncopal, was actually lower to the ground, you know, middle-aged lady, not much by way of background risk factors, but still red flags all over the place story-wise. And I think it had some subtle, um, you know, ECG changes as well. The sort of presentation to me was along the lines of, you know, this patient, is, it's an atypical pain. Do you think maybe they'll be able to go home and just follow up in the com- community? Um, and just for context, excellent resident. I'm, I'm by no means suggesting that they were incompetent or arrogant or anything along those lines. Uh, it's just back to the biases that we hold. Uh, you know, this woman en- end up having a troponin of 600 and then ultimately discharging against advice because the, uh, I think she was a, a businesswoman or something and, and she had more important things in her life and didn't want to stay. And so, you know, it, it highlights multiple levels of, of, um, sort of minimising symptoms that, you know, both in terms of the patient and in terms of us, we, we probably could have uh, could be aware of. And so suddenly for me, any time I'm assessing a female patient with chest pain, I'm just conscious of thinking, you know, am, am I missing something? And, and that's probably something that we can do to, you know, make sure that we're keeping everyone safe. So I guess, Amanda, I might just finish by asking one last question, um, which would be, I guess, what are your three take-home points from this paper that we can maybe go home and think about a bit more? I mean, I guess the first thing is the obvious one is that we should really be broadening our differentials when it comes to women with chest pain. Like Izzy sort of touched on, I think maybe it's just this sort of unconscious bias that we have that women have more risk factors for other types of or other causes of chest pain. So potentially just having that in the back of your mind. I know that I don't tend to do that unless I've seen a really catastrophic case, which as I said, I haven't seen. So that could be something to embed into practice more regularly. I guess it just highlights really that time is myocardium and that the outcomes are right, like quite significantly different between men and women where the, in the situations where men are getting their treatment faster than the women are for whatever reason it may be. And then the third thing, I guess, would just be to making or highlighting it more to the public what you want them, I guess, what you want them to be able to recognise as being a red flag 
that would bring them to the ED or make you concerned enough to take your family member to the ED for the same sort of thing. Thank you so much. we have Dr Jessica Stabler who is going to be covering the paper titled Motherhood and Medicine a systematic review of the experience of mothers who are doctors by Rebecca Hoffman et al. Thank you Jess. No worries thanks very much. Um, So this is a um, systematic review that was published in uh, the MJA in 2020 and so they went through um, and looked at the published literature from 2008 until uh, 2019. Um, Included uh, in the article were studies that had been peer-reviewed, written in English. They had to have female sex as a variable in the study um, and they had to uh, examine an aspect of parenting. So when they looked at all of those, uh, they came up with 35 articles that met the inclusion criteria. Um, They were mostly surveys and there were a couple of um, semi-structured interviews and focus groups that were included as a part of the study. So from these 35 articles, they undertook a thematic analysis um, and they identified kind of three main themes that they then um, elaborated on in greater detail. So the themes that they identified were firstly motherhood, the impact of being a doctor on raising children. Um, The second one was medicine, the impact of being a mother on a medical career. Um, And the third one being combining motherhood and medicine strategies and policies. So when they looked at motherhood, the impact of being a doctor on raising children, um, I guess there were a couple of key findings. The first being that women found decisions around uh, balancing children versus career progression to be quite difficult. The second one being that most of the respondents reported um, deferring having children for career reasons and that decisions about career progression were likely to influence family size. And so most women reported having um, smaller families, either because they were um, choosing to prioritise career advancement or as a consequence of kind of uh, starting families later in life. When they looked at medicine, the impact of being a mother on your medical career, they had two separate themes that they went through. So the first was um, the effect of pregnancy and parenthood on uh, on career progression. Um, and I think one of the key and uh, important things to highlight was that a motivation to return to work was not lessened by uh, by motherhood, but that there were kind of uh, significant systemic barriers that uh, that were encountered by women and so that the ability to return to work or the hours in which uh, women did return to work were influenced by um, access to childcare but also obviously personal and uh, and family preferences then the other one which was uh, which was quite interesting and I think we will uh, probably have some discussion about later um, was the the perceptions of um, pregnancy and parenthood amongst the medical fraternity. 
I think that this was particularly interesting because um, it highlighted that there are still quite significant uh, negative perceptions um, whereby colleagues perceived that their workload was increased significantly when working with a pregnant colleague. The female doctors were often assumed to be uh, disinterested or unavailable or unwilling to complete tasks or work extra hours um, if they had children. There was uh, one particular article that was commented on, um, which was a US study where program directors um, acknowledged uh, that, so 45% of the surveyed cohort acknowledged that um, their hiring decisions were influenced by disclosures of, um, of pregnancy or family planning. So that was particularly interesting. Um, and then in the um, the final theme, um, it was looking at, uh, at strategies and policies um, to, to aid women to combine and balance motherhood and medicine. And so I suppose un- unsurprisingly, um, in institutions that had good maternity leave policies and policies specifically on leave and, um, and career progression were kind of uh, rated higher and women felt better supported in their ability to, um, to balance motherhood and their medical career. Strategies that have been demonstrated to assist in this include uh, maternity leave policies, having accessible breastfeeding and lactation spaces and having flexible working options. But interestingly, there's actually there's very little study that has been done on the uh, on the direct impact of having these uh, these policies in place and um, and having women returning to the workforce. So that's kind of my summary of the article. Thanks, Jess. So I was just wondering how these study findings maybe reflect your own experience in the workplace. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess um, I'll, I'll start off by saying, so I am uh, a still relatively new mum. So I uh, completed my uh, physician's training and um, have done my first year of neurology advanced training. Then I had twelve the last 12 months off on maternity leave with my little daughter, um, who is now almost four months old. I guess a lot of this was kind of um, unsurprising to me but it's nice to see it kind of written out and to be able to read this and and think that it does very much um, echo a lot of um, a lot of my experiences. Um, so I think it is uh, it definitely is kind of uh, challenging trying to uh, work out how how to balance the the timings um, of of all of this and I think uh, the the important thing is to acknowledge that both um, fa- family and um, and career both both of those um, entities impact each other on on very in very real ways um, and often have quite conflicting and competing um, interests so it is definitely a, a challenge to kind of um, juggle these two things Interestingly, I guess the um, one of the things to highlight was that the um, women delaying family and having careers was not necessarily uh, that that's not exclusive to medicine, and is um, I think they they commented in the article that it is um, so the more education that a woman has received, the later she is likely to um, to defer having a family. So it's not something that is um, isolated, I suppose, to the um, to the medical fraternity. I think the issue lies with that I don't have a wife. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice and to have one though? <laughs> and men get a wife. And I think if I had a wife, I could achieve so much more in my life. <laughs> There's actually a book written by Annabelle Crabb called The Wife Drought and it actually that's what it's all about, the fact that successful men, leaders, have a wife at home mm. and successful women, you don't have a wife at home. Mm. Um, 
there's a massive gap there and that's why we don't progress. I feel very strongly about all these issues. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I just wanted to stop and think for a second, like if you look at all the facems in ED, the female facems, how many children do they all have? Honestly, I actually don't know. Okay, so. I feel like you guys all have one child. Yeah, maybe so, two. Yeah. Maybe two for Okay, and then think about the males. You're like, they've got many children. Okay, and why, why is that? Mm. There might be some other reasons at play, but it's often caused you've delayed. Like I was 34 when I had Aiden, so I was fortunate that, you know, I finished my training. But, you know, I, mean, I became a boss in May 2006 and Aiden was born in April 2007, right? So it was a very calculated thing that I was like, I'm going to finish and become a boss before I have a child because I now look at – you know, you guys, the regist- female registrars here who go off and have maternity leave doing their training, and I just say, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you get up in the middle of the night to a crying child and breastfeed and what all the other demands that you have and still come to work and a, a competent doctor and have to do your training. Like, I take my hands off to all of you. But, like, I was 34, one of my, you know, good colleagues, she was 38. So you've delayed having that first child to very late in your life, which, you know, impacts your fertility, one. But also I think the longer you don't have children, I think the more selfish and self-centred you become. And so when you do have a child, it disrupts your life a lot more at 34 or 38 than it might do at 25 years of age. And then it makes you think, actually, can I do a second child? Like, is it is it possible? And I think that's why most of the females in the department have either got no children, one child, and I can think of one who's got two children off the top of my head. And I can think about the men and they've all got two, three or more children. One of the other really interesting things that they touched on in the study um, was this this concept of, um, of despite one's role, women still uh, being responsible for a greater share of both parenting and the domestic workload than men in an equivalent study. So one of these was a um, was a US study um, and they looked at uh, male and female surgeons in the same area, so at the same level in the same area of specialty and found that across the board, the female st- surgeons were still responsible for a lot more of the, um, the domestic parenting stuff than uh, than their male counterparts um, and I think the concept of the the mental load is something that is uh, that is very real and does impact on I, I guess women's decisions in terms of uh, family family size we spent you know the last what 40 50 years you know promoting feminism we want to be equal right and so we've we've you know we've got we could We've taken on all these new roles, but all those jobs that we had as the the wife at home, we haven't offloaded them, right? Mm. Like we're like, we can do it all, but you actually, you can't do it all, Mm. you know? So there's a study that shows that for every 1% a woman contributes to the household total income, she drops 17 minutes of house duties (laughs) until she gets to about 60%. So once she becomes a primary breadwinner, she actually increases how much she does at home, <laughs> which is bizarre, right? And it's, I don't know if it's because you're trying to compensate because you've violated the traditional roles because suddenly, you know, you're off doing what's you know typically a man's role and you're not doing what the woman's job at home and so you think, well, I'll compensate and do more. But anecdotally, myself and my female colleagues who I've spoken to about you, doesn't matter, you know, you can have the most open-minded, you know, egalitarian husband or partner in the world, but women, we still do the jobs 
like the little jobs about signing the notes for school or packing Mm. the lunches or getting a new school uniform. Mm. It's your mum that does all that stuff. Mm. It's not your dad and I don't know how you change that. And so if you're a leader in medicine and a woman training in medicine and you've got this mental load at home plus you've got the work, you know, something has to give. And I think the thing with that mental load or our cognitive load, I'm sure it was either Simone or Caroline, we were talking about this last year as well. As you say, there's so much equality in relationships now. Like you can have the most open-minded, everyone does the same things. But these little things that you talk about, Danielle, that are so hard to quantify, like I find it very hard to quantify. I've thought about what the meals are for the week, Mm. even Mm. though you and I have worked the same number of hours and you know you've done the same amount of work and that kind of thing but at the same time I've made note of all these little things that need to be done you know but I can't quantify like I've spent two hours thinking about this or because it's not it's it's little bits in between think about who buys the gifts and exactly the right yeah and the cards and wraps the presents yeah and buys the food for Christmas lunch and prepares like who's doing all that thinking in your world mm. and I'm happy for people to tell me that it's different but in my world it's the females that are doing it. Agreed, agreed, yeah. I still remember on Christmas Day once, like, you know, I've, I've, I'm from a Caucasian family and uh, we finished Christmas lunch and my grandfather's there and my father and my uncle and my mother dutifully, she's 70 years old, she dutifully got up and started cleaning up and so did my grandmother and my sister got up and my father said to me, and my father is, you know, always encouraged me, I can be anything I want. He goes, aren't you going to help? And I was like, <laughs> no, I'm going to sit with you and do nothing. And then he got up and helped. <laughs> Speaking from a male perspective, I tried, like, we're obviously um, pushing for equality for everyone. Um, but I think there are still, like, subconscious biases um, in our, like, male minds or I think everyone's minds that, like, for example, for me, um, I'd always said um, ever since, uh, like, I started, like, medical school even, um, I said that I don't really want to uh, marry a, another doctor because I'll be busy, they'll be busy. And then who's going to do the housework? I mean, like, in reality, <laughs> it should be equal. And yeah, then, and why I'll, can't you do the housework? I'll make it, I'll make it equal. But there's, there's that subconscious bias where I feel like a child needs a mother more than a father. Obviously, it's, it's probably not true. Um, but um, there is something, um, I guess maybe something in society, maybe something that we've seen or learned from a, a young age that um, makes us have these thoughts and biases. Yeah, it's built in. It's like a nurturing thing. It's your own experience, isn't it? Because if your mother is the one that's done all those things for you, then as you, you know, become a parent yourself, there's that kind of built in like, well, my wife or whatever will do those things that my mother did for me as well. I also wonder if, and Daniel, you might be able to see if you agree or not. I personally, as a flaw in myself, and I wonder if it's like this for a lot of these situations where you have the cognitive load that we've been talking about, I find it hard to delegate that to someone else though. Like if I leave that for my husband to do, I know and I know that we've had situations where it's like, okay, you can do this, but then you go, actually, can you do it like a little bit like this though? Like, and I have the same OCD control problem. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if it's You've like... You've got to do it to my standard or yeah, I'll just do it exactly myself. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. And then, and then you're sort of like, it's 
not necessarily their fault that they're doing it in a different way um, and you've tried to make that offload or you can buy the birthday present or you can think about what's for dinner but actually this isn't as healthy as it could be and you've been a bit inefficient about this and you and know it's the day of the party and we still don't have anything exactly right you haven't wrapped this very well like these little things which I think so are we our own worst enemies this is the question that I'm asking like I find at the end of the day my husband doesn't care about these these little things you know but I've spent an hour and a half when I should have been studying looking up the perfect present for a three-year-old and is that just something built in about being a f- woman and being a man that that's just the way you are exactly and you're just right very different with different priorities about what is important to dot the i's and cross the t's exactly on. right so that question I don't know that we'll be able to answer in a study or in evidence or anything like that it might just be it's a cultural thing or something inherently within yourself that you've seen from years of shaping from your own parents or that you enjoy doing yourself or that kind of thing those things I think we won't be able to have much control over in the short term I think it's important to acknowledge that things are kind of slowly changing there are I think gender differences in our expectations I suppose as we've um, as we've just said but I think we are seeing a greater shift in this space and that I think um, we do need to start looking at unraveling some of these kind of societal expectations and and it is it is happening for instance um, I had all of last year off and my husband he's working but not working in a full-time capacity for this year as I've come back to my training so um, and that is that's becoming kind of a more common thing and I think people are becoming more comfortable with that um, but it is there's still a ways to go because back in the 1970s if you're a public servant as a woman once you became pregnant you had to resign from your job and that was the end of your that's in Australia in the 70s yeah that was your end of your career you're done thank you very much so yes we have come a long way but I still think we've got you know a, a long way to go Definitely. a people accepting that actually a male can look after a child like I've actually gone on like conference leave overseas and my mum will say oh Danielle's gone to a conference and they go Who's going to look after her son? Maybe the other parent who's a male. I don't know. But it's changing those social norms yeah. and biases. Some of these insights are very interesting to me. Like, Danielle, I've never thought about how many children the consultants have before. That's like kind of very interesting to think about and reflect. And Harry, thank you for the um, sort of brave insight into our, our own, I guess, you know, potential biases that we might hold because it's kind of difficult to acknowledge that in ourselves sometimes. Um I found reading this paper really interesting because in a lot of ways, um, a lot of these mindsets that are deemed, you know, motherly mindsets are kind of my mindset. Um, And certainly, you know, when you guys have been talking about the sort of relationship role, you know, this might be a little bit of an outlier, but I I think that I sort of do play that role in my relationship with my my partner. The point being that... um, this is clearly something that's been attributed as a, a female mindset. Um, but as you said, it, you know, there, there is a shift. And so with that, I'm kind of wondering, do you, do you think that as, as perhaps our sort of perceptions of gender roles change, some of these, um, you know, issues that are being faced, particularly uh, around sort of the impact of our profession on 
parenthood or motherhood um, will be a little bit more evenly distributed. I like I just I'll be interested in what your I don't I don't know if your partner's medical, but what, what his experience was because suddenly um, when I was choosing my profession, it was a very conscious thing that my my wife is going to want to do a physician job. She's going to have long during the week hours. I would like to have a flexible job so that you know if we do have kids, I would be able to juggle that. You know, I, I've certainly reflected very, very much that I would love to have some parental leave or, or that sort of thing. And I wonder, you know, what your experience was in your own um, um, relationship, if, if that's not too personal. And then also, Danielle, what your perception has been of, you know, the male trainees' attitudes to this, you know, over, you know, maybe a little earlier in your career versus now. I think it definitely is a is a space that is is changing, and I think that uh, people's expectations have uh, our societal expectations have uh, come a long way, and we are seeing men be a, a lot more involved in both domestic and uh, and parenthood than we pre- than we potentially previously had. And I think you could um, take this article and apply a lot of it to parenthood but by the same token I think that there are still aspects of it that are very particular to women in medicine. In particular I still think that the concept of the the mental load is particularly um, applicable to women Um, and I think that there is very real discrimination that that does still exist that is probably improving from from what it used to be but I think it is very, very real and it is still challenging to be a, a woman in medicine. On that note, I can just say that I have many years ago in Jess been asked by someone who was going to give me a job. Do I need to do an ultrasound on you to make sure you're not pregnant? Yeah, and it's said in jest that would never be said, no, a, a male, that would never be something that would come mm. up, you know what I mean? So why has that come up as, yeah. as an issue? And, and it definitely still happens. I, I can think of multiple female friends in medicine who all have anecdotes of similar things, you know, pre-interviews being asked personal questions about family planning. Yeah, it definitely still happens as much as uh, all of the all of the colleges would like to say that it, doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. <laughs> and on that note too, I've experienced like female, especially female trainees here who are either pregnant or perhaps they're like a single parent and looking after children, judgment passed on them by their colleagues and it tends to be female colleagues passing judgment on them, which surprises me because you think we should have each other's back. They're all like, oh, she doesn't work very hard because she's pregnant or why does she leave early every Tuesday, you know? And that's because she leaves early every Tuesday because she's got to get to the childcare by six o'clock. So I think women, and I'll touch on that on my interlude, I think we have much to blame for, you know, what happens at work as we like to, I don't want to man bash, but I'm saying that, you know, women are as much to blame. A slight digression, but I think in, interesting and important to acknowledge is that um, whilst I think that things are becoming a lot more equal, particularly in so as as you were saying, Shreyas, I think that things are becoming more equal in the domestic space um, between uh, between men and women, and I think women do have greater expectations of their um, of their partners in in general, and that things will be more equal. But I have read um, ver- various commentaries that kind of um, touch on. The the fact that once you then become a mother, um, I think because because there are biological needs that your child has that only you can fill, like in the newborn phase, you know, the feeding, all of those 
that that is a um, a big thing that mostly the women are responsible for, um, and that often there can be a shift where things have gone from an equitable footing to then because the woman assumes that nurturing role and uh, so say say the woman is off on mat leave husband is still uh, still working then she starts to assume more of a uh, a greater domestic role say and often that never shifts back to the same equal footing that it was before. Thank you that's a really good point and I guess something that I've certainly um, wondered about if and when we we cross that step, you know what the difference in dynamic will be. Danielle, much much though we don't, you know, I, it's nice to not man bash. At the same time, we probably do need to accept some responsibility for for the um, current state of affairs. I, I guess it, it's nice to know that things are changing. Um, and and you know, at at the same time, I will say that with most of my conversations with friends, um, like the dynamic is more along the lines of what you guys have alluded to, as opposed to you know what I'm suggesting. I, I do wonder as well, you know, aside from implicit biases, uh, about more systemic biases that sort of contribute to this. So, for example, um, I've been th- thinking ahead to, you know, family planning stuff. And along that lines, some some of the thoughts that have crossed my mind are, okay, my, my wife will have the opportunity of having six months parental leave. I would ideally like to take six months to how will that work? Is that going to be six months unpaid leave? Is it going to be, um, you know, stacking up as much of my annual leave as, as possible and then, you know, just taking some time off? Um, you know, how, how am I going to negotiate that? And then as I sort of looked more into it, I was like, actually, um, paying the mortgage is going to be an issue if I try to take <laughs> if I try to do this. You know, sim- similarly al- along the balance of negotiating family duties, if if only my wife is going to have the opportunity of of you know, looking after the child at home, then uh, perhaps that shift is going to be inevitable where um, she is then just by nature of being physically at home going to end up taking more of the domestic duties, which I don't want to see that that um, trend happen. It would be sort of unfortunate for our marriage, I think, if that's, that's how things are going to go. And yet at the same time, you know, because of the way the system has, has been designed, I'm, I'm struggling to see a way around it. So I'd be interested to in in your perspectives as to um, parental leave policies. Um, certainly, you know we, we've are currently experiencing a wave of pregnancies in the department and a few you know a few new fathers as well as few mothers. And certainly, the new fathers um, have a couple of times uh, mentioned to me uh, frustration at the fact that they already have to be back at work. And I, I wonder if perhaps a bit more uh, evenness in terms of parental leave will lead to. A little bit more of balance, both in terms of domestic things, but also in terms of the fact that suddenly, um, you know, it's not only women who have to take significant amount of time out of work, and so maybe the sort of career progression is also a little bit more even. My understanding, and I could be wrong. I think at the moment, in if you work for the New South Wales Health, it's fourteen weeks full time yep. maternity leave, or t- twenty eight well, weeks. At half at pay. At half pay, yeah. So you, yeah. Can, you can elect how you want it to be paid, but yeah. 14 weeks full pay. And then yeah. Mal gets two weeks parental leave. Um, and I'm not familiar with what happens in private industry. I imagine it's a lot less, if not much at all. Mm-hmm. I know in the US, just across the board, you just get no type of leave whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's much. I think there's only like a couple of weeks they yeah. get, if that. So, but which compares, I think, if you look at the Scandinavian our countries there's is far more generous and far more flexible so i agree i think you know father could you know parental leave needs to be looked at and you know 
expanded to it should almost, it should match you know what you get as maternity leave and I guess the only question about that is if you're both working in health you know it comes down to finances too is isn't it so if both of you decide actually we're both taking 14 weeks full pay leave that's a problem whereas if only one of you work in health and the other works somewhere else you know health wouldn't have a problem with it so I think a lot of it comes down to changing the mindset because you know historically men didn't take leave but also will come down to the almighty dollar. I agree I think there are certainly systemic factors that are perpetuating these uh gender divisions and these kind of becoming increasingly outdated gender roles um, and so and it's the same um, so New South Wales health 14 weeks for women two weeks for men uh, same with the the government so you can get some parental leave from the government and that is 18 weeks for a woman and two weeks for a man so there's still very real systemic factors that are perpetuating these kind of gender divisions. I think it's quite interesting to think about what those policies, what message that sends, because mm. it's one thing to have this discussion and for men to be willing to take on more domestic roles, but if you've got hard set policies that don't allow that to play out, like you're saying, Shreyas, I think it really does still send the message from society that women are expected to carry the primary load, having a child and that kind of thing. And back to what you were saying, Danielle, about, you know, how you actually found it interesting that often it's the woman criticising the woman. I think that's a really complex issue and I think it's a really real one um, in society. And I think it comes from a place of shame from that female potentially struggling from a whole lot of different factors that they're not coping with either. So they're feeling all this pressure to be the best mother and to be, you know, have a great career and everything else with all these ongoing societal expectations and then they end up cracking by criticising the next woman who may be choosing their priorities slightly differently because it is such a big juggling match and then questioning their own decisions and wondering whether they should be, have been making the same decisions as that female and prioritising their kid and guilt and shame. And I think it's this really scary cycle to watch. I mean, I haven't had a kid yet, but it seems really hard. It is. <laughs> yeah. But coming, also coming back to work, honestly, was like gave me sanity. Like actually coming back to work and using your brain again and actually having an uninterrupted coffee and maybe some <laughs> conversation with an adult was just, I don't know if Jess, you agree, <laughs> uh, was like a breath of fresh air. You, you know, there's a lot of guilt and you miss your child that's away from you. Mm. But it, for me, I was, I was after nine months of mat leave, I was like, I need, I need to return to work. I've yeah. heard that from a lot of the registrars recently, the female ones that have been coming back. They're like, even 0.5 at the moment, it is such a breath of fresh air. I can talk to adults. I feel like I'm being more useful. I'm not just with my child all the time. And I guess it's interesting because a lot of that identity before you had your child, like when we hear a lot of the time that when you have your child, your main identity is mother first and then everything else. But before that, if you were a doctor working, particularly in a senior role as well, I think where you get a lot of your identity from that role to then sort of give that up, have something else where it's a lot of about one other person to be able to come back to that place where you were before, I can see as being very refreshing, but also challenging to balance at the same time. I agree with Caroline, it sounds very hard. <laughs> and I guess just on that, I, it's actually, it's something that I've been thinking about a, a lot lately, obviously, is uh, kind of recently having um, returned to work. Um, and I definitely agree. But the other thing that I've been really um, struck by and I find very interesting is that I think we, as, as human beings, like to kind of dichotomize. And I've really noticed, um, I, I guess, having just made this transition, 
when I was at, at home with my daughter and uh, and being a, a stay-at-home mum, people like to assume that, okay, so they put you in that pigeonhole, you're a stay-at-home mum and therefore you don't, you, you are not career motivated, you, you know, don't have personal aspirations. And then I have returned to work and I've been having all of these people say to me, oh, it must be, it must be so nice for you to, um, to have a break um, and, uh, and to, to, to be, be away and be, be, you know, back and thinking again and like that, that kind of thing, which, um, which yes, yes, it definitely is. But people are kind of, I, I feel like um, then I'm now put in this box of, okay, now I'm, now I'm a working mum and therefore I am solely focused on my career. And, um, and it's actually much more complex than that because Yes, I am really enjoying uh, being back at work and I'm enjoying the cognitive stimulation, but at the, by the same breath, every second that I'm here, I'm very much missing my daughter um, and, and I'm thinking, you know, how is she going at daycare or with my husband or... Um, and it's, it's really... They, there's not really a space where you can... Yeah, people like to put you in, in one of two boxes and, uh, and not acknowledge the complexity of emotion that goes goes along with being a working mum. Can I ask you on that note, returning mm. to work, mm. obviously returning to work involves often childcare mm. and then, you know, some women who return early, you know, they're still breastfeeding. Mm. So anyone's opinion around the room about why we've built a brand new building for Westmead Hospital there's no childcare thought put into any of it. I know there's childcare down the back of the hospital, but the places are very limited. Mm. And my experience of having to get up in the morning and get child to place A and drop them off to arrive at work at eight o'clock mm. and then to get back home to pick them up from place A when you think actually if there was childcare at the building where I worked, it'd be much easier. Mm. Thoughts on that and then thoughts on breastfeeding while you work and expressing why you work and why the lactation room, either no one knows where it is or it's based very remote from where we are at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think, uh, I think both, are, both are real challenges and, um, and barriers to women um, returning to work. Um, so I, I don't know where the lactation room is. <laughs> About five years ago it was on B6, but I'm not sure if it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it's interesting kind of re- returning to work as a, um, as, so I'm, I'm still, uh, still breastfeeding, although we are, um, we are weaning. I'm sure had I needed to be expressing at work, uh, I would have needed to to be more of my own advocate, I suppose. But there were no kind of clear pathways or anything for, oh, you are to, to be able to flag myself as someone who is returning to work from 12 months of, of maternity leave. Um, there was, you know, no clear um, input from anyone as to um, these, are, these are some of the things that you might need to make that transition easier. I don't think it's something that's really thought no, about no. or priorities, you know, put on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I was like even anecdotally because um, Caroline had the forethought of asking, you know, a few of our, our registrars who've recently had children um, for their, their experiences. And one anecdote that was sort of shared with me was that even on the obstetric ward, um, there wasn't a dedicated so sort of readily available uh, staff um, breastfeeding room that was mm. that was and so she had to go into the um, the room that was reserved for the public um, which I mean 
you know, it must be very confronting for a member of staff to be sort of, I guess, be vulnerable in that way, you know, in, in between patients, given that, you know, we probably do like to, uh, in some way or form, sort of protect ourselves to some degree from, from um, our patients. You know, there's probably a, a bit of an elf in the room here. We've spoken a little bit about not man bashing. Um, and so uh, as the man, I'll, I'll take the role of bashing. Um, <laughs> I think that um, we probably need to hold some accountability for um, the current sort of structures and, and, you know, how the system has been organised. And, you know, I, I don't think that um, we're going to be able to point to any uh, one individual and say it's his fault. Um, but at the same time, you know, patriarchy has clearly played a role in the fact that the, this structure has, you know, placed so many barriers towards both females pursuing a career and um, being able to sort of balance that with motherhood. Um, I think there's been sort of these multiple false narratives and Danielle, you alluded earlier to can women have it all, which is, is a false narrative because really the, the narrative should be, you know, how can we even out the distribution of both of, of all labors? You know, how can, how can everyone sort of have more even career opportunities and domestic work? Um, and similarly, um, you know, Jess, you were alluding to the fact that we're still trying to pigeonhole women into um, different identities. Um, and I think that, until we challenge some of those sort of larger systemic notions of, of you know, what parenting is, what motherhood is, and, um, you know, I guess a female role in the workplace, we're not going to address these issues. Um, you know, I, can, I can sort of idealise, um, you know, egalitarianism all I want, but I'm never going to have to face the idea of having to breastfeed in, pub, you know, in, in the hospital. And, um, you know, even, even as a man who can't possibly imagine some of this stuff, that idea is very daunting for me. So um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of work that we need to do in this space. And, and part of it is going to be acknowledging um, the role that we can play, you know, both from, also from a male perspective in terms of challenging our own, um, you know, perhaps prior discriminations that we've perpetu perpetuated and making sure that we're not taking that forward. And I guess um, one of the other key systemic factors that I don't think we've touched on yet is ac actually the training programs. I think they can, they can make, uh, make things quite challenging at times. So for instance, um, I... Uh, so we're talking about um, childcare, Danielle, and um, so as part of my training program, you have you have to move, um, and so I was uh, so I had to move from uh, where I previously lived, which was where my my family and my husband's family are from, um, for for this year, um, and but you don't know where that's going to be until later in the year um, and so then for things like accessing childcare um, that's that's a real challenge because I didn't know where I was going to be to put my daughter's name down and and wait lists along and if if there is a childcare centre within a hospital the wait list is really long um, and so ju just simple things like uh, like that I uh, had no idea and we've been fortunate to um, to get her into a very lovely childcare that is very close to the hospital um, but um, but that was certainly um, not a not a given and we've been quite fortunate in that aspect. 
you, why is there a wait list for the childcare? If you've got 5,000 employees in a hospital, why don't you build a childcare that is staffed yeah, yeah. to cover all those employees? Yeah, absolutely. So that issue is taken off the table. I yeah. think from an emergency training point of view, uh, I think we're probably a bit more fortunate mm. from my perspective and, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, that it is a lot more flexible. Mm. Um, you don't have to move as part of your training. I know you have to do, obviously, secondments and they often require you to be full-time for a period of time. But in ED, you know, you can definitely take time off training mm. and also you can come back and work, you know, 0.5, which I imagine would be a lot more challenging to work half-time as a physician trainer. And I think that that's, um, that's one of the areas that does need addressing in a, a lot of uh, not not just physicians I think um, a, a lot of uh, specialty training programs they kind of have the idea that they um, that they are okay with flexible training options but when you um, when you actually look at the practicalities of that often individuals are required to provide their own FTE like um, their, their job share partner you're you're required to uh, to find that individual and present yourself as one FTE, um, which can be uh, can be quite challenging and, and is not in reality a flexible training option. I guess we really could talk about this all day. <laughs> I don't really want to wrap it up, um, but I guess maybe just would you be happy just to finish off with maybe three things that we should all maybe go away and think about, or that might you might want us to work towards changing yeah so I, I guess my uh, my three kind of uh, summary points from this are that um, it is really important to acknowledge that medicine has a significant impact on the experience of motherhood both in terms of the the timing and number of uh, children that you have as well as at times contributing to family strain but I think it is also important to acknowledge that it does actually offer many benefits as well including uh, you know financial freedom but also all of the women here can um, can say that we all really enjoy our, our job and find it find it invigorating. Um, so I, I think another key point is that mothers are not less motivated to make career advancement, but there are very real systemic factors and prejudice that does make that challenging. Um, and I think my third take home was just this idea of the the concept of the mental load that is associated uh, strongly although not uniquely, but strongly with uh, motherhood um, and that women do often bear the greater responsibility for parenting and domestic workload. So in summary, be nice to your mums. <laughs> <laughs> and your wives. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, Jess. it's time for our interlude segment which Dr Daniel Unwin has prepared for us this week. Thank you. Uh, thanks Caroline. Um, so this is just a I guess a piece that I've written just to think on. It's not necessarily my thoughts or my opinions. 
and I guess you'll understand while I've said that after I've read it to you. So, yep, thank you for inviting me to be here today. When Shreyas first asked me about today, he said, can you speak for about five minutes? And I was like, oh, well, what, what do you want me to talk about? He's like, oh, you know, anything you want. And I was like, oh, okay. And uh, I said, well, so what did the last person discuss? And he's like, oh, you know, they just, you know, talked about the futility of research and interspersed that with some of their favourite opera. And honestly, <laughs> I felt sick to my stomach. <laughs> I was like, sounds super intellectual and cultured and the only culture in my life in my spare time is the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and maybe some maths. And then I stopped and thought, why do I feel this way? Why such self-doubt? Is this just me? Is it some women, most women, all women? From where I sit, most of my male colleagues seem supremely confident and an attitude of, I've got this and no problem. What in society instills such confidence in men and not in women? Why do women who can don't and men who can't do? If we look in our own backyard in this hospital, and I'll get you all to think about this, how many heads of department are women? If we are 50% of the medical workforce, why aren't we 50% of the leaders? There's been a lot in the media recently about women and their rights and treatment by men. And then I thought, is it men and the way they're treating us, holding us back from being leaders, or is it our own doing? And then I thought, how do women treat women? So there's an unwritten law about how we all interact with each other, and it's called the power dead even rule. So for a woman to maintain healthy relationship with another woman, each must feel the power and the self-esteem of the other person is equal to theirs. When there's an imbalance in this equation, for instance, when a woman rises to a higher status, then the women around them talk behind their back, ostracise and belittle. And they do that to preserve this dead, even power. It's a subconscious behaviour. We don't know that we're doing it and we don't even know why we are doing it. Women who were leaders tend to behave like men. They're confident, assertive, rather than displaying the traditional traits attributed to women of communication and empathy. And this is known as the queen bee syndrome. We behave like men to fit into their world. Our success often involves convincing men that we are not like the other women. I'm different. And this culminates in the inability to cultivate relationships and mentor junior women. We often don't promote other women into leadership roles. There's this feeling amongst successful women leaders that I've worked my ass off to get where I am. And you need to figure out for yourself and I'm not going to make the path easier for you because I've done it really tough. So are we our own worst enemies? Do we need to change the way we treat each other? In the last week, I was told by a senior male colleague that a senior female colleague never really liked me. She's not in this department. (laughs) And I responded with, oh, why is that? And he said, she said, you were too aggressive, assertive and abrupt. And I stopped and had a bit of a laugh and thought, yes, I'm probably all of those things at different times. And then I thought, well, the male colleague telling me this story has the same traits. And I wonder if they are seen as a negative by his colleagues. And I thought, they're not. They're probably not seen as a negative. So do we need to take more responsibility for where we find ourselves? Many of my female colleagues would and have secretly admitted to suffering from imposter syndrome. 
you know, doubting your skills and talents, that ever-present fear of being exposed as a fraud. Is the imposter syndrome only in the minds of women? Have you ever had a man tell you he has imposter syndrome? I never have. Studies show men apply for a job if they meet 60% of the criteria, but women only apply if they meet 100%. Why don't we self-promote? Why don't we self-advocate? Does it stem from our childhood where girls were steered to be perfect, not to take any risks, and boys are encouraged to take a leap of faith? Is this where we learn to underestimate our abilities and performance and the reverse happens for men? We have this quandary. We often feel to get a seat at the table and to succeed, we have to fit in with everyone else, which historically has been men and act stereotypically masculine, but then perhaps suffer the negative consequences of such behaviour. I think for women to succeed, we need women to be themselves, to be women. We need to be our biggest cheerleaders and we need to embrace men who support and champion us as leaders. And we need to believe we are worthy. I'll finish off with two quotes and you can take from them what you will. The first one is from Madeleine Albright, who was the US Secretary of State. She said, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. And the second one is from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who said, as women achieve power, the barriers will fall. As society sees what women can do, as women see what women can do, there will be more women out there doing things and we'll all be better off for it. Last but not least, we have Dr. Izzy Rashid, who will be looking at the paper titled Effective Professional Background and Gender on Residents' Perception of Leadership by Mindy Jew and Sandrajan M. Van Sheik. So I'll pass it over to you, Izzy. Thank you, Caroline. Um, so I'll be talking about a paper that is a comparative study that was published in 2019 in the Academic Medicine paper. Essentially, what this topic covers is sort of area of research that hasn't been heavily researched there isn't a lot of high level evidence and I think from the podcast episode so far today we can see a lot of this is anecdotal um, but also despite it being anecdotal it's very consistent like we've got neurology doctors we've got you know junior registrars we've got consultants who have had years of experience who are all encountering a very similar experience so I think if there were more research to go into this sort of area you'd still be finding a lot of consistent findings. Essentially this paper, its goal was to examine the impact of both professional background and gender of a resuscitation team leader and how those things affected the perception of their performance by, in this case, in this paper, they used residents. Essentially they hypothesised that people who were perceived or who were noted to be male would be perceived to be a better leader compared to the females and they also hypothesised that your physicians would be better leaders uh, or perceived as better leaders compared to nurse practitioners. So the way that they did this paper is essentially they recruited 160 participants who were residents across four different campuses and they recorded a video where they used two trained actors, so a male and a female Caucasian trained actor, 
um, to act as the team leader in a simulation where there's a predetermined algorithm for how the resuscitations should run. So I think in this one, I believe it was ventricular fibrillation off the top of my head. So there's a very obvious algorithm in terms of treating this. And then they had eight uh, other sort of participants in the team who were other physicians not involved in the study otherwise. And then they ran a scripted simulation, essentially, um, including things um, that are typical of a realistic scenario, such as communication errors and things like that, to be more consistent with what we might see in real life. Um, They then recorded this simulation. They had everyone wear scrubs and they had the person who was the team leader wear a white coat as well. And then this recorded simulation was sent to their 160 participants but in in the four different videos that they recorded so a male running it and a female running it they were recorded as four or sent as four different videos so one labeled um, a physician one labeled nurse practitioner and each male inversion being sent out so four in total and then to run the study they sent a randomized video so one of these four videos to each of their participants and then they got the participants to um, rate the performance of the team leader based on a previously validated criteria that is the Ottawa Crisis Resource Management Global Rating Scale. This is essentially a rating scale that has five different domains So these five areas were leadership skills, communication skills, situational awareness, problem-solving skills and resource utilisation, as well as a score for an overall performance. Um, And they're basically anchored scales. They collated this data and reviewed differences in patterns basically related to that. What they did find uh, with this study basically is that they had statistically significant results in two of these domains so that is the leadership skills domain and the communication skills domain and in the other domains um, like situational awareness and resources and things like that they didn't have statistically significant differences so for the leadership and the communication skills domains the leadership skills domain males were rated over an, on an overall scale of sort of 5.74 plus minus and for 1.17 and females were rated as 5.29 so that gave us a p value of 0.009 and then communication skills females were rated as 5.05 plus minus 1.2 and my, males were rated 5.57 plus minus 1.06 so a p value of 0.004 Interestingly, the data didn't demonstrate a statistically significant difference in the other domains, so overall performance, problem-solving skills, situational awareness and resource utilisation. But if you actually look at the numbers themselves that they've tabulated in every single domain, even if it's not statistically significant, the males still score higher than the females in every single domain, in every single video that they've done. So that's, I guess, a bummer, but not (laughs) particularly like unexpected or surprising based on the experiences that we've discussed so far. They also sort of had a look at this study looking at other variables. So the technique that they used was a two-way analysis of variance test to see if these categorical independent variables like male or female or their professional background affected the dependent quantitative variable which was the assessment that was made of their leadership skills. So they looked, they found that there was no significant difference based on the combination of the gender and professional background of the team leader so if you were a team leader that was a physician that didn't make a difference in your score versus a team leader that was 
um, a nurse practitioner, they interestingly, these are the parts that are more interesting to me in this study, the gender of the resident that was assessing and the gender of the team leader did not affect the assessment either. So females were just as likely to score female team leaders lower compared to male team leaders and the gender of the resident professional background and the gender of the team leader um, did again didn't affect that assessment. Um, so I guess their hypothesis because they hypothesize that the background professions would impact the scoring or have a significant difference and it didn't but they appreciate in their study in their discussion that they perhaps didn't emphasize that as much in their study as well as they could have they sort of overlaid at the start of the video as a label of nurse practitioner or doctor but then that label disappeared for the rest of the video and then they sort of did a bit of like a like a follow-up study and checked that of their 12 participants that they'd asked nine of them had identified uh, the person as a physician when they were not the the actual reflections of that person so they just forgotten basically and in both situations the nurse practitioner and the physician wore a white coat we don't really wear them here but I guess in their setting it's a lot easier to sort of go okay white coat doctor their hypothesis regarding the gender-based differences was met what's interesting is what you'd sort of touched on earlier Danielle so in when you talked about the qualities in male physicians or that kind of thing or your conversation previously about someone who had qualities like assertion and things like that um, be a reason that they didn't like you as much. They've mentioned that the highest scoring anchors in the scale that was used for areas like communication and things like that um, or decision making areas that kind of thing they've used phrases like firm or decisive Um, and what they've sort of identified in this study which is consistent with what you've said Daniel is that these qualities or phrases to describe someone adjectives that are potentially attributed to more male type qualities and then they've said for communication phrases things like encouraging input and listen to staff feedback are the more highly rated scales and um, but they're considered more um, typical female behaviors um, but interestingly despite those being considered more typical female behaviors we didn't see the females scoring higher for those so what they've essentially suggested is that um there's a bit of a double standard in that sense so the males are good at being males and the but the females aren't good at being females i guess is what they're sort of suggesting from their research um or they've sort of referred to the backlash effect um so the notion whereby women who don't display characteristics consistent with a female stereotype are at increased risk of prejudice or discrimination so pretty much a damned if you do damned if you don't situation so I guess that's consistent with what you were saying before Daniel and perhaps what a lot of our experiences are they referenced uh, this concept of the leadership categorization theory to reflect it's a theory that's been established previously or looked into previously that examines how professional background and gender can affect perceptions of leadership Um, so we what they say is that people generally will create a picture in their head of what makes a good leader um, and that in turn influences how they perceive leaders and how they interact with them again can not be consistent with what we actually interact with or perform despite seeing these characteristics in our head what they also noted was that the other domain so we've referred to the domains where the females did worse than the males like communication and leadership but the other other domains used language in their anchors that were less gender typical so areas like problem solving situational awareness and resource utilization where there wasn't a statistically significant difference between males and females used um 
phrases for behaviors like avoid fixation error or able to use resources. So these are sort of phrases that don't reflect, I guess, personality traits almost even. And then those are the areas that didn't have a significant difference, which I think is interesting. They also appreciated that there was no difference identified between uh, or differences or patterns demonstrated when you looked at the gender of the resident, the gender of the team leader and the background of the team leader, but have insight that the power of the study was not sufficient to detect all these interactions. And I guess that what would be curious would be to see how these factors as well as smaller other things, so perhaps a follow-up study if you wanted to build on this, would be also things like um, factors like height or ethnicity or volume of your voice even uh, or whether you have an accent or not as a team leader. I'm sure those are things that would be interesting to look into as well that may also contribute. Like if you have a small, ethnic, heavily accented female team leader versus a tall, Caucasian, deep-voiced male team leader. Like, do you know what I mean? They, these are I all don't need to do that study. I you see it every day at work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess in terms of limitations that were identified by the study, we've sort of touched on some of them. One of the other things that the study dem- identified was that the study was demonstrative but not quite explanatory. And I think what we've sort of discussed so far is a lot of these reasons are societal issues as well that are ingrained from an early age, a lot of cultural expectation and that kind of thing. And I don't know how we can address that in society as a whole at this stage. The thing that I found most interesting in this study is sort of very much touching on what you'd said before, Danielle, about how women might be their own worst enemies. So I found it very interesting that the gender of the resident didn't affect the performance assessment at all. Because just in my own experience, I don't think I've ever thought that team leader is a woman, I'm not going to listen to them more than a male one. I like I cannot remember a single time where I've thought that. I've thought I don't want to listen to that person because they're rude or they don't know what they're talking about and then it's, you know, whatever other reason, but not because they're female versus they're male. I can't say that I was surprised by the study overall. I would expect that the female residents would have some degree of insight, as you were saying, Daniel, into appreciating how challenging it can be in this situation and some empathy um, and understanding and perhaps make an attempt to make this situation a bit easier. But that said, I guess I can also see that these issues may not be as evident to a resident compared to someone who's more senior and encounters these issues more daily. I think like in my own personal experience, I'm now like an early stage registrar who's done it for a couple of years. As a resident, it's a lot more in terms of your female encounter bias or these experiences you get it's a lot more of like being a doctor being called a nurse or you're too young to be doing this or you're a beautiful young doctor like or how old are you how are you so young like these are all things that can be a lot more complimentary and I often thought as I got older people would stop assuming I'm the nurse it doesn't happen it doesn't change even last weekend on two occasions within three hours I was referred to as the nurse, you know, yeah. and there's nothing mm. wrong with being a nurse, right? But I've told you my doctor and I've discussed your medical problems and it says specialist on my shirt. On my shirt, mm. it says and, doctor and you there. you still call me. And I'm in, wearing a different colour to everyone else here. Interestingly, like, I had a conversation with one of the male staff especially the other week and he said, had some interaction, he goes, and they thought I was the nurse. And I said, is that the first time that's ever happened to you? <laughs> and he goes... Yes. <laughs> I was like, okay, that happens on every shift for me. Yeah, yeah. exactly mm. right. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, something that 
I am going to assume every female doctor has had said to them at least once a year, if not once in their careers so far. Um, I, I would say much more frequently yeah, than that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember reaching a point like it, when I when I first started out as a um at, like as an intern, I would never correct. I would never correct exactly the same. But and you I kind of changing? like I felt I felt awkward about. Yeah. I, I, and I was like, oh, if I if I correct them, it's because I I'm looking down on. Yeah, I on feel like I'm better something. than a nurse, and, and which like, is not even, the sense even at all. Yeah, you just just uh just justified like, my statement. Yeah, yeah. yeah ex- exactly, exactly, and. Then I realised, no, this is actually, it's actually really important for the patient to know that they have been seen by a doctor. Mm. If I am the only doctor seeing this person, that that is an important thing. And so, um, I, yeah, there was definitely a point that I reached where I was like, no, I am going to correct people. I, I correct, and I still correct them all. Even yep. when they go, nurse, can you get me the bedpan yep. or a bottle? I will go and get it. Yep. I'll come back and hand it to them and I say, Here's your bottle. I'm actually the doctor in charge. Yeah. Exactly right. And and I I used to like sometimes I still catching my ca- sometimes I still catch myself feeling bad for correcting yeah. them and then I'm like no this is an important thing. <laughs> and I think it took me years to get to that point. Yeah. Like I don't think in internship or residency I feel exactly the same as you. I felt awkward, I felt uncomfortable, I felt like I don't want to be putting down colleagues or I don't think I'm better than them or anything like that, yeah. but I don't want it to sound like that. But in the last couple of years I felt felt a lot more confident in exactly doing the same thing as Danny I will happily do that for you but just FYI I'm the doctor not the nurse just so you know Mm. like it's I it's not like a bruise on my ego or anything like that it's just something that needs to be out there I think um I I think just touching on that as well like it's a lot easier to one you feel more uncomfortable saying it as a junior as an intern or a resident but also it's a lot easier to let that slide but then as you become more senior it's more important one that they know because you're often responsible Mm. for their care because you're managing 40 50 patients often in this department if you're the registrar on the night you know or you're the consultant who's covering uh, an acute side as well as the short stay area as well as these hot zone patients when people come and ask you you know and I think it warrant some credit to cover that as well and also appreciate that there's a lot of things going on and you can't get to them all at the same time um i think you you definitely encounter other issues as well that as you become more senior these male female dynamic um problems become more evident so in this sense so i've definitely recently had a patient who I was clearly talking to a nurse at at the moment in front of the patient and they said excuse me and I said just wait a moment I'm just going to finish talking to her finished talking to her about a plan for a different patient went to that patient and said how can I help you and they they were like "Uh, don't worry about it forget it like a male middle age type thing and I was like no no I was busy talking to that nurse there was something that we had to do for another patient now I'm free how can I help you and it was some benign it was like a a drip like the the drip has stopped or something like that you know what I mean like but I think they don't have that awareness that you were responsible for so many things and sometimes it requires um, education or expl- explaining why you were that situation rather than sort of just saying, oh, sorry, I was busy or this or that. It's going, I am the doctor who's in in charge of a lot of things happening at the moment and actually I can't be available for you because I have these many, many other things going on and it doesn't matter if I'm male or female, it still is a significant requirement of me to sort of do all this and I guess I'll sort of talk about that sort of side of things a bit more I think other things like 
when you're more senior, you, I feel like you have to work harder to be more assertive and taken seriously and even things like not being physically spoken over the top of by um, a colleague from within the hospital, you know, like to be cut off while you're trying to talk or advocate for a patient and you're physically spoken over the top of. Do you think sometimes confidence is mistaken for competence? 100%. Yeah. 100%. Like just because – like I've been – told ridiculous plans and I honestly in the last 12 months is the point where I've started to become questioned like more comfortable in myself to question things and say actually I don't quite understand why that's the case that doesn't really make sense to me whereas before that it was very much like okay you've said this I will come back to this later do you know what I mean I think that's very much a uh, I, I can't speak for male counterparts, but I can see definitely in colleagues um, who are female that um, they often get overridden and it's because they don't have – they're not the loudest person in the room and they don't have the deepest voice and they're not physically standing over the top of someone else to try and get what they're done – like what they need to do done, you know, these things like that. They're not comfortable with – you like talking over the top of someone or yelling over the top of someone on the phone or raising their voice to make an issue heard, you know, like, which are all things that shouldn't be happening. But I also wonder if uh, like our male colleagues or counterparts are more comfortable in doing those things because perhaps it's perceived as a more male behaviour or more acceptable for men to do that or that kind of thing. I don't know. I know the other interesting thing, particularly in relation to the residents looking at a resuscitation where there's a invariably the person that's leading a uh, resus is a very senior team leader a very senior physician or a very senior nurse practitioner interestingly and I'm curious because I've definitely had uh, conversations with other female registrars and I wonder if it changes when you're a consultant I've definitely had female juniors like interns or residents be a lot more dissenting to the input that you give about patients um, so for anyone who doesn't quite understand the way that our ED at the very least runs or a lot of EDs you'll often have your juniors go and examine a patient and see them and then they'll come to you and talk to you about your patients and you'll often give a provisional plan make a plan to see that patient a bit later but give a provisional plan of things to start off with in the meantime I think it's this I think it's not this and I've had female JMOs who are a lot more dissenting a lot will not agree or take instruction as well who will eye roll or not not say okay I'm happy with that plan interestingly perhaps more than male juniors overall I've had colleagues who I've spoken to and say hey what's your interaction with this person and they've said yeah the same thing happens to me and then you'll go ask your male counterpart and say hey does this ever happen to you and they say no you know and it's just I just find that fascinating that this is happening from your the people who should be understanding exactly as you say Daniel these are your like you're your own worst enemy Do, I don't know. Do you, do you think the? I'm just trying to think of like, have I had interactions like? And I've had, I think I've had interactions like that with both male and female yeah. juniors. Um, and I guess the other interaction that comes to mind is actually when you give them a plan and then they go to someone else. You know, who That's gives, the other thing. Yeah, exactly. And right. I always say to them, there's many ways to skin a cat. Yeah. You know. So just because my plan is different to Plan B doesn't make either of the plans incorrect. So I guess when I get a junior who kind of challenges or disagrees with my plan, I often will just put it back on them and go, well, what, what do you think we should do? Like what, yeah. what, what about that are you not comfortable with? But just going back to the leadership thing, I was 
going to say like a positive experience I've seen and had is actually male registrars here when a female leader is kind of being undermined in a recess by outsiders coming in, you know, who are kind of questioning them or trying to take that leadership role for them. I've had, and I can think of three or four male registrars here who've come and stood beside the female leader and said a sentence or done something to reaffirm to the room that Mm. she's in charge. Like, is everything good, boss? Yeah. What can I do, boss? Yeah. Like, just to stop the kind of room and actually go, she is the person in in the charge. And and so I – and when I see our male registrars do that, I think, well, that's – that's awesome that they're championing their yeah, female. Yeah, 100%. I've heard, I've heard a story from a colleague just a couple of weeks ago who said they'd gone to like an ALS in the foyer or whatever and it was them and it was one of our extremely senior consultants, female consultants, and she was there running this whole thing. She'd gone with him and then everyone – and he's like a Caucasian British, you know, young doctor, you know, and everyone was turning to him mm. and she had to say – excuse me, I am the consultant from emergency medicine. I am running this, like, resus- like this situation. Can you listen to me, please? Which is like, I feel like after that many years and that much experience, it is insane that they have to reaffirm themselves. And, like, this doctor is also saying, can you guys listen to her? Don't listen to me. I'm just the SRMO or whatever. I don't know what I'm talking about. Talk to them, you know, like, and it's crazy that you have to reaffirm that so much after, like, decades of work you know but it comes back to that whole kind of you know hashtag look like a surgeon yeah you exactly mean that right. those social norms that you know a doctor is a man yeah with a beard, exactly right yeah hair. so Maybe. i i guess on that it's sort of like if you think about what we can do to change this i don't know because they, these are ingrained things they're ingrained concepts that are so hard to sort of move away from and for all the work that we do to get our partners to do the equal amount of domestic duties or get equal pay, there are so many cultural or societal things that are just ingrained that are so hard to get away from. Um, so as a resident, I, I actually found this study quite interesting That, or well, I personally think that I don't think uh, – the gender of the team leader has ever um, affected my personal thoughts. But again, I'm sure the residents in this in that study also thought the same. It might have mm. been a subconscious thing. Um, but I did I did have a, a quick think about why I never thought about gender um, as a um, like a discriminating factor. And I think for me, like not only in medicine, obviously I've been in emergency a lot, so I have a lot of registrars, a lot of um, consultants who are just always on the floor, always um, always running things. Um, but not only in medicine, but also outside of medicine, I've had a lot of um, strong female influences. Um, when I think of um, all the strong like leaders in my life who've shaped, shaped me as who I am, I've had a lot of female influences. And uh, from that aspect, I think um, one of the um, solutions or one of the ways that we can really think about this is that we need more female leaders in, in life in general. Um, and of course, um, we are like, this is the idea of the whole podcast, right? We, we are trying to steer thought or provoke thought and start discussion in a way that um, we can um, increase female presence and female standing, promote equality. But as I said, I think one of the main reasons is that previously there may not have been as much 
female influence that are clearly visible or clearly palpable. And I think we, we are changing slowly. Um, I think it's great to see a lot of strong female voices and um, individuals, um, but I think we do, we do need to see more before we see a gradual change in shift in attitude. I actually discussed this with a very senior male anaesthetist yesterday after we did a uh, trauma resuscitation. And um, and he's, you know, a very, a really values opinion, very egalitarian person. And he said he went to a conference about two years ago. It was a, I think it was Smack. Mm. And um, he said there was a discussion on stage about women in medicine and women being leaders in medicine. He said there's about 5,000 people in the crowd. And he said, and it was, you know, amazing, there's – 10 women on this panel on stage and he thought why are there no men on that panel advocating for women why is there two and a half thousand men sitting in the audience and listening but why are there no males up there there's lots of women going hey this is happening this is true but there was no real male advocates and he was very much the opinion that you know we need that other 50 percent of the population to to you know to raise their voice and put their hand up and you know you know, and stand beside women and say this is a thing and we're here to say it's a thing. Mm. I think in that sense it's interesting because a lot of the the bias that we'll see on the floor day to day in terms of how we see these issues are even things like, as you said earlier, Daniel, you have to take, yes, there's like parental leave uh, differences and disparities, but also things like I have to leave at a certain time for this. I think people like I am aware that some female registrars will get reputations for not being reliable or always off sick or you know calling in sick and that's but that's often because they have a sick child and they're the person that can care for them best you know but I think that part doesn't trickle down often if you've called in sick you've called in sick to what like one admitting officer phone and said my child's really sick I can't come in today sorry and then that trickles down to this person is sick today on the at the morning meeting and we need to reshuffle everything and then that trickles down to oh that person's sick again you know what's going on there which is like the general gossip on the floor between your your nurses and your jmos and your registrars who are not that linked in or may not be that close to them or consultants that don't know them that well or vmos who aren't here that often and then you end up in this situation where you have a reputation right but it's not it's not anything that can be controlled. You haven't tried to make your child sick, obviously. You're trying to do what's best for them. You're balancing your priorities. And I think at the end of the day, your family member being sick versus one 10-hour shift on the floor, you've got to look after your family member. And if that ends up being something where you have a reputation, like I, I feel like I wouldn't care less if whatever, you know, Bob's, Joe, whatever, said of me on the floor who I see once every, you know, three days versus my child who thinks that my like their parent is not there for them when they feel really unwell. But I think that comes back to, that again, why the, the mother... Why the mother is the person that, that the falls that back on. Exactly right, yeah. And the father Exactly right, yeah. 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 So I think that part is hard. I think touching on your part about what the men can do as well... Very much checking your bias, I think, is the thing. Like, I've had consultants who I will appreciate treat me as Trace. I know you and I have had this discussion, but male consultants who you'll be like, hey, does this person do this to you? No, they've never done that to me. I was like, oh, cool, because they've done it to me and they've done it to this other female registrar and this other female registrar, but I've never seen them do it to any of the male registrars. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, like, mind-blowing that these little implicit 
biases that we don't maybe we don't realize that we're doing maybe we do realize and we don't care or you think that this person is not living up to it or your pregnant registrar is not working as hard as everyone else or this or that or the other like these little things that you don't realize are happening are happening and I think it's important to just try and check your bias at every single step of the way because it's it's a little thing at every turn ends up building right it's just a hurdle after a hurdle there's so many and eventually you get so fatigued you think i can't be bothered fighting the good fight exactly right yeah yeah especially when you do have all of these other competing interests on your plate (laughs) um the the energy that one has to to deal like to tackle systemic issues (laughs) becomes less as well and i think that that is that's also one of the um the key contributors to why sometimes women don't advocate for themselves because they have all of these other Mm. 10,000 things to do when they get home and they don't have time. (laughs) I really agree with what Harry said earlier about the um, influence of role modelling. I think that Westmead ED is actually, I think, blessed with an exceptional cohort of female consultants. You know, I, I think that really, really shows in our fairly strong proportion of female ED registrars who are very keen and, you know, um, very sort of career-minded in terms of, you know, pursuing, you know, whatever their aspirations are. Um, and I, I think the the mentoring is really evident and it really plays a role, both in terms of the interactions with the female registrars and really uplifting them, but then also in terms of, um, you know, f- from my own perspective, having um, senior female clinicians and, and sort of, you know, to look up to and to sort of learn from. I certainly think that, you know, we were discussing, Izzy, um, you know, a key theme of your paper was the disparities in traditional perceptions of, of what male behaviour is and what female behaviours are and, you know, perhaps males being rewarded for masculine behaviour, females being um, disparaged for not displaying feminine behaviour. Um, uh, you know, there's been this narrative that uh, that women need to sort of maybe... Uh, sort of change, change, change their behavior to be less submissive and less this, less that, um, to in order to sort of progress in in society. There's not much talk about how perhaps traditional femininity has benefits, um, and perhaps as a male, I could benefit from being more traditionally female. Um, and I certainly think that um, watching uh, female consultants versus male consultants, sometimes there are differences in behavior and differences in managing particular situations in which actually probably the female consultants tend to handle those particular situations better. Um, and it's, it's you know, very useful learning for me um, to sort of observe those sorts of interactions because uh, I think it, it goes to show that perhaps, uh, you know, we've, we've traditionally just labelled traditional masculine behaviours as being a plus and traditional feminine behaviours as being a minus. And so, you know, we need to get away from females displaying feminine behaviour so that, so that they can, you know, have more equality. Perhaps will also have more equality if males are less masculine and more feminine. You know, my, my wife has been a, a sort of big influence in me in, in, in this regard as well, you know, as, as a very powerful advocate, um, you know, for, for um, feminism, um, you know, in the workplace and society in general. Um, and she's certainly, you know, a, a lot of these experiences that you were alluding to, Izzy, of sort of having to having to constantly correct, having to, um, you know, deal with these perceptions that, oh, she's just a, a young medical student sort of wandering through. Or I think she was told a, a couple of months ago that she was a work experience um, 
kid from high school you know this being being a, a small female ethnic person sort of seems to tend to lend to these sorts of situations almost to the point that she has to um, quite uh, assertively maintain her authority in situations where she really shouldn't have to I think it must be like I, I really empathize I think it must be incredibly frustrating to have to continuously justify yourself because I think that might be arrogance on my part but um you know, much though I do think I'm a very self-critical person and, and probably do have a lot of imposter syndrome and constantly doubt myself. But one thing I refuse to do at work is apologize, um, mm. uh, you know, unless I genuinely think I've done something wrong. Situations like where, you know, you were called out by that patient because you were talking to a nurse and, he, you know, he needed his drip fixed immediately. I would, I would never self-justify in that situation. I would be like, I'm sorry, I was busy and I would walk off. Um, and similarly, you know, in, in, in other interactions, if, if, if someone's trying to, trying to get me to get a bottle for them because they think I'm a nurse or, or that sort of a situation, obviously I'll try and help them where I can. But at the same time, I'm not trying to sit there and have to justify why, you know, why I'm acting in my doctor role and doing my doctor things and that's an important thing to do and I think it must be incredibly infuriating for you to have to sit down and say yes there's nothing wrong with being a nurse but no I'm not a nurse but you know being a nurse is still a valuable thing but at the same time I, I'm performing this role and so I, I'm sorry I can't do that minor task for you right now yeah. and I just like I think on, on the one hand it must be so frustrating to have to do that but I also wonder about and uh, you know I'd love your opinions on this um, about your I guess self-perception that you need to do that and, I, and I've, I've certainly been reflecting recently in the lead up to this episode that many of my female colleagues seem to apologize for you know say apologize on the handover or apologize on the ward round mm -hmm. for things that they've done so much more than I ever do or that other people tend to do you know I, I sort of very um, shamelessly told Danielle the other, the other day that I've left a job in short stay for, for her to sort out in the morning whereas I, I think uh, a lot of the, my female colleagues would have been maybe a little bit more abashed that they did that so I'd love your opinions on that I could, like I can I here in my notes in preparation for this I have written under like potential questions what role women can play stop apologizing is the first point that I put down so I completely agree what I've learned to do is use particularly after sort of 2019 where we all had a really bad year here I've start I've started using explanation rather than apology to diffuse a situation if you have like an extremely busy ship where a patient has waited many hours in the waiting room and they've come in and they're clearly frustrated already your interaction is already starting here when it couldn't higher when it could be like a lot more settled and diffused and in those situations I've I used to say sorry for the wait now I will say thank you for waiting or if they start because that's out of my control there's nothing that I've done wrong there's nothing that I can do to see them any sooner than what it is these are huge systemic issues and it, it's not my fault so I shouldn't be apologizing for that you know I, I hear people apologizing and it irks me like you know like sometimes say hey you shouldn't apologize for that that's not your fault your your sorry is not a personal thing you know like patients if they're frustrated with wait times I've started saying you should write to your MP you know like this is not something that I can fix for you today I can help you with your medical issues I can't help with the wait times do you know what I mean I've had like I've tried to have make sure that the people around me are not doing that as well and I think perhaps it was hard to sort of do that in the beginning because you feel some personal responsibility 
when you have these situations and these people are using you as their target. But I think a really good piece of advice, which sounds so basic, but I received last year was just don't take it personally. There's so many systemic issues. And I think a lot of the time you feel like it's your fault or they're treating me like this because I am little and an easy target or whatever. But at the end of the day, I'm not taking it personally because it's not my fault and I need to know that and it's easy to think that it is but and I, I it's interesting where you say I have you know you have the patient who has a bottle and actually I'm not the nurse I'm the doctor and blah 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 but I wonder Shreya how many times you actually have to have that conversation with the patient like I feel like you perhaps have it a lot less than the rest of the females in this room do. I absolutely do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think in that sense, and one of the things I've sort of thought about with regards to how these biases and these differences between men and women in medicine um, affect you is that it takes away from caring for your patients. Like if I've spent 30 seconds explaining to them, actually I'm the nurse, I'm the doctor, or if I at the start thought that it would impact my relationship with my patient, if I felt that they thought I was being hostile or offended or anything like that. And even now when I correct them, they'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. And they'll say, no, no, I don't, I'm not saying it for you to apologize or for you to feel bad. It just needs to be out there, you know, mm. but the, whenever you're doing that or whenever you're trying to deescalate a situation for this reason, or you're trying to advocate for your patient and your conversation is so much harder than it needs to be because you're being spoken over the top of, or you're trying to deescalate, it's time away from other things that you need to be doing. And then when that is happening over and over again, exactly like you say, Danielle, you can't fight this battle all the time. It's exhausting until you don't want to do it anymore. And I think anything that can make that fight a bit easier, whether that be having your colleagues step up to try and help you having role models as you say Harry which I think is really important and the other thing that I find interesting as you were saying Shreyas with regards to your maybe your males need to be more feminine rather than your females being more male like if you think about leaders in society as you say Harry like not just ones in medicine but in society if we think about like pinnacle examples or moments in history recently you've got Jacinda Ardern who everyone fell in love for when she showed empathy with her with you know her despairing New Zealand citizens when they'd gone through a very critical time during that whole Christchurch situation you know she was empathetic she was hugging people she was trying to explain and saying I'm sorry that this has happened to you you know what I mean rather than antagonizing or splitting populations or things like that she tried to assimilate she tried to demonstrate respect and appreciation you've got like RBG as you said Danielle Ruth Bader Ginsburg who's pioneering and critical and extremely intelligent you know you've got Julia Gillard who was who did her misogyny speech which was assertive and it was it was very eloquent you know like these are not things that are just seen in males they're definitely things that are seen in females but there's also things that if you think about it they're just good qualities to have and I think people have thought about them you know Kathy Freeman who won her race she was successful she was enduring she was a symbol of representation you know these are things that everyone can be doing but they've been so attributed to males in the past or they've been negatively associated with women in the past to be empathetic or soft or demonstrate compassion like I think we're perhaps starting to get to a point because this has only sort of been in recent years that we I think appreciate these things if we get to a point that these are actually just good qualities to have you'll have perhaps more authoritative team leaders or consultants or decision makers who can perhaps mellow out and make an environment that is more comfortable because just as you guys were saying earlier you don't want to be in an environment that is hostile that you feel like your females are being underrepresented or they or you feel like you can't trust them or there's this bias amongst the 
amongst the people that are working there. Like I think if you can just emphasize these qualities, which is hard to do and not something that we're going to do overnight, but identify the people that you want to be like, which I know is a conversation that Simona, you and I have had in the past. We've had with Danielle, we've done these things where basically the registrars to walk around and be like, hey, so who's the consultant you want to be when you grow up? And who's the consultant that you want to look after you if you came into hospital? I answer Danielle for both of us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel like, you know, very embarrassed. It's, it's weird because as a female, that makes me feel awkward and embarrassed. Like it's a compliment. Well, why should it's it, right? That's I know, it exactly shouldn't. right. It's, it's like, a massive compliment, but yeah. it does. It makes me, I'm sure if you said the same thing to, you know, Rach or anyone else, they'd be that like you kind of, often when like Amanda and that go, like I, they give me a compliment, they go, I want to do emergency. It does. Yeah. I kind of, I'm, I'm, it's a massive compliment, but I kind of shy away from it. Oh, that makes me awkward. Yeah. If I was a male, would that make me awkward? Would your ego just be inflated yeah. a little bit more, you know? Like, this you know, thing for us, it makes us, you know, if we can walk a path that encourages, you know, to mentor females to do emergency medicine, like, if that's the only thing I achieve, that's an amazing thing completely agreed like I know a lot of the girls when we ask who they want to be is this female consultant and this female consultant who they want us to look after them is this female consultant or this female consultant like there's never I haven't asked anyone who has said the two consultants that I want to be like are these two male ones and the two consultants I want to look after me are these two male ones you know there's always been at least 50% females which I think is really impressive like my, my wife is currently doing haematology in uh, Nepean Hospital and um, has spoke at Passion about how it's an all-female team. Every single consultant, her as a registrar, the junior, they're all-female. Um, they're apparently all exceptional as well and, and it's just an incredibly empowering experience for her and, and something that I think drives her to pursue her own aspirations, which, which I think is really good. And suddenly, you know, for myself, when I was an intern um, in an acute surgical unit in, in Gosford Hospital, um, I had that same experience at various points where it was an all-female team. And um, it does wonders for your ability to negotiate your own implicit biases to be able to have that sort of an interaction. I think the best photo in our department is the picture all women consultants. of all the yeah, female yeah. consultants I, I together. Too. I think there's definitely a lot to be said for hopefully changing the prototype of what a typical leader looks like. And I definitely think having been an intern and a resident at Westmead, I think our ED really champions that. So I think we're very lucky to work in the department we do with bosses like you, Danielle. I really wish we could keep talking about this all day, (laughs) but maybe Izzy, just to finish off, if you can give us your three main take-home points from this paper, and then we'll definitely even maybe make room for a second Women in Medicine podcast to come back to a lot of these really valuable discussions. I initially wrote as my three take-home points, they were all just one, check your bias, two, check your bias, three, check your bias. I th- and then I thought long and hard and got a couple more. So like reflect on your interactions. So both the good and the bad elements that you have, particularly with people who you think it might've been a bad interaction with and try and appreciate why that might've been a bad interaction. And also say, actually, should I be taking that personally? Is that a bias within them? You know what I mean? Rather than question yourself. Because I feel like at the start, I definitely would have questioned myself a lot more. Why don't, why are they not agreeing with me? Why isn't this just happening the way that it happens for my male colleagues? That kind of thing. And then learn to not take that personally and work on strategies to try and get around that. Like even using phrases like, hang on, you've said your part. Can I just say mine now? 
which I wouldn't have said as an internal or resident, but I definitely will with patients who are frustrated with me now. Empathising with your colleagues and realising that often the ones who are breastfeeding, who have young ones at home, who have multiple kids, they have competing priorities the same uh, in, a, in a way that I do not. You know, I have no responsibilities and I still can't get my life together. Like imagine what it's like to have multiple children and a mortgage and uh, balancing a full-time job and caring for your children. Like, you know, I've eaten takeout for the last three weeks because I've had work and weddings. That's it, you know, like it's not a hard life and I've had no responsibility, but it's still already that hard just appreciate what it's like for everyone else and when someone has called in sick twice in a month and it's because their kid is sick just go you know what it sucks that their kid is sick let me see what I can do to help them or if I hear someone else talking about them in a negative way for that reason maybe say hacks they probably have it a little bit hard right now you know what I mean like and just just try and be a nicer person to your female colleagues I think that's it I think just just be good people that's it and just check your biases be good people that's it Thank you, Izzy. Now moving on to one of our favourite segments of each month, Kit's Corner. I'm devastated that I've been absent, especially for this recording, but due to popular demand I've remained in my corner, so to speak. And I thought I'd use this opportunity not to be funny or witty, but as a pathway to pay homage to an amazing woman, Mary Shelley. As the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, she was not only one of the world's first feminists, but the acclaimed author of a book that recently surpassed its 200th anniversary, Frankenstein, which of course she initially had to publish anonymously. And she's a woman with a fascinating history. She grew up around the patriarchal intelligentsia of the male medical world and witnessed many of the first galvanic reanimations where corpses were stimulated with electrical current and for no reason, as it turned out, other than the fact that people could. And Frankenstein was a resistance to this. It was a social commentary on the deeply unethical traditions of medicine at the time, and it brought medical men into question. In ED, we're constantly challenged by the ethics of medicine, and it's tempting to forget and to do things because we can or because we do, rather than because we should. I challenge you. Have a read about this amazing woman and have a read of the original book. Amazing as usual. <laughs> <laughs> when he started, I was like, I think Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. Is that what he's talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Better than my literary knowledge. <laughs> Thank you everyone for making it through to the end of another podcast with us at Network 5. I would like to take the opportunity to thank our guests, Izzy, Jess, Amanda, Harry and Danielle again for their contributions to this really important discussion today. And a particular shout out to Shreyas and Harry for representing the males in a somewhat potentially intimidating discussion at times. Um, we really appreciated your input. 
On that note as well, we'd really love any other SRMOs or residents out there like Harry um, to get involved. We really want you all here talking about the papers we're discussing. So if you are interested, please feel free to contact Shreyas for more information on that. As always, we would love to hear your feedback and any questions you may have from this discussion today as well. Uh, you can contact us via email at westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. All the links to the papers discussed today will be available in our show notes and we encourage you to go and have a closer read of these as well. Hope you have a great month ahead and we look forward to being back in your ears soon. Thanks everyone. Mm-hmm.